Well, you can keep your Bibles open to 1 Thessalonians 5. That's the passage we're going to be in. And this is a special week for Grace Life because at this church, we try to follow the rhythms and the seasons that are regular in our lives. And school just started back. Uh, Labor Day holiday is over with. So that means we are launching our community groups. And we're really excited to introduce those groups to you at the end of the service today. And I thought it would be good since we finished chapter 13 in Mark. When we finish a chapter, we're going through Mark's gospel together. I always like to pause, see if God has anything for us in between those chapters. And he does. So this week, I want to talk about walking with others in wisdom and love. Part of the community group dynamic is relationships. And uh, anytime you put more than one person together, there is great opportunity for growth. Uh, and there's also opportunity for conflict. And uh, the, the Bible addresses this over and over, and, and especially in this passage that we're going to look at. So I wanted to encourage you with this as we launch our community groups how can we thrive uh, relationally with one another? There's, there's some ingredients and some instructions here that I think will help everyone. Uh, but to start, I want to give you a little list. Would you know the most common surgical errors that are committed by even the most skilled and, and seasoned doctors? Well, I'm going to list just a few. These rank in the top 10. Again, surgical errors that are committed by the the surgery doctor in the hospital. Number one, leaving a foreign object inside a patient. Oops. <laughs> Sponges, gauzes, scalpels, sutures. <laughs> um, that's one of the most, would you believe that's one of the most common surgical errors? And it often causes severe infections. And in some cases, of course, it's fatal. So uh, just make sure the doctor is counting all the instruments and, <laughs> and all of that after they are stitching you up. Number two, operating at the wrong site. Now, unfortunately, this doesn't mean that you're at the wrong hospital. It means uh, maybe they took off the wrong leg. <laughs> uh, and it happens, and it's terrible, uh, but it does happen. That kind of surgical error has led to a lot of horror stories and sometimes lawsuits and litigation and medical malpractice. Here's another one, inflicting nerve damage. When you have a person and he has a razor-sharp precision-cutting instrument and his hand starts to shake, or maybe he had too much coffee or maybe too much of something else or maybe not enough coffee, and he's next to a nerve and can slice it. That can cause paralysis, nerve damage. Administering too much anesthesia. Uh, that's a pretty common one. You want to go to sleep when you're cut open, but you don't want to stay asleep forever. And some, sometimes that happens too. So be nice to your anesthesiologist, right? And make sure they're alert and uh, paying attention. Here is one of the most common surgical errors. So be aware of this one. Everybody ready? And this is going to parallel with the passage that Melissa read. Performing the wrong procedure. Performing the wrong procedure happens a lot. Happens a lot in hospitals. Meaning this, maybe you walk into the hospital with food poisoning. But unfortunately, you are misdiagnosed. And so you walk out of the hospital without an appendix. You may leave a little bit lighter, but they did the wrong procedure on you. They had the best of intentions. You came seeking help from trusted, trained professionals with a degree, and you left uh, tragically worse off than you came in. And friends, would you know that that happens a lot? It happens a lot, and it starts out with misdiagnoses. They, they misdiagnose what your problem was. And hey, nobody's perfect. Doctors are, are human beings, and because of the fall, we're flawed. We make mistakes. We misjudge things. We prejudge things. And Christians are no different. That doesn't just happen in hospitals. It happens in churches. I've done it. I've done it a lot. 15 years of ministry, 
I've hurt people unintentionally, inadvertently, misdiagnosed them, prejudged, didn't listen really well to them about what the adversity was they were going through, and I made assumptions that were terrible and hurtful and harmful, and I've had to go back and apologize and ask a lot of people's forgiveness. Maybe you have too, or maybe after today you'll see that you need to. Or maybe you were on the victim side of that. Maybe you were one of the ones that spiritually got your appendix taken out when it was perfectly fine. And when you needed just to have uh, some antibiotics and sent home to rest, right? Or maybe you were given antibiotics and sent home to rest and you needed your appendix taken out. You know, that goes both ways. So I really want to focus on verse 14 today in 1 Thessalonians 5. I want to read that with you and we want to take a look at that together. Verse 14, but I want to back up to verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and who admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, that's talking about elders and pastors and shepherds. And I've always felt awkward preaching on this, even reading this, just being honest with you, because it feels so self-serving for a pastor to get up here and say, hey, hey, esteem me very highly because of my hard work for you. Recognize me, admonish me, think highly of me. Um, But that's exactly what the Bible says. And it's assumed that these are legitimate elders, legitimate pastors who are toiling, who are laboring, who are sweating, who are doing the hard work amongst the sheep of shepherding and counseling and loving and teaching and correcting. Um, But that's not what I really want to focus on today, but I wanted to get that in. Here's verse 14. So verses 12 and 13 were talking to people in the congregation and was telling them how they should view their leaders, their pastors. And now Paul's going to change the subject a little bit, and he's still talking to the congregation, and he's going to tell them how they should treat and respond and relate to one another. So check this out, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Let me read that again. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So just a, a couple of preliminaries before we jump into, into the outline here. Preliminary number one is that this is written to everyone in the church, not just leaders. We tend to think of these things, these, these commands, There's work to be done. There's diagnosis to be done. There's observations to be made in relationships that we share with one another. And that's really intimidating to people who don't feel trained. They haven't been to seminary. They haven't been to Bible college. And they think, oh my goodness, this is a tall order. And shouldn't this be left to the professionals? But listen, sometimes there's not a, if you even want to use that word, I I don't really like it. If there's not a trained leader around when there's a relational crisis, um, what are you going to do? Are you going to ignore it? No, it's, it's like uh, I've always thought of first responders, maybe an EMT. You know, they never know what they're going to walk into when they get a, a call, either to a wreck or to a domestic call or during a storm. But sometimes we're the first responders, right? Sometimes we roll up on a, a tragedy that happened, a wreck, and what do you do? There's no EMT anywhere around. You're maybe hundreds of miles in the middle of nowhere, and you come upon a tragic wreck, and they need your help like right now. And you're nauseous at the sight of blood. You can't even remember how to do CPR. What do you do? You just stand back and say, well, I'm going to call 911. I can't do anything. No, the Bible says you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. We're a family. 
And that's exactly what you, how you would view it if that was your brother or your sister trapped in there, right? Or a son or a daughter or a mother or a father. We are. We're family. And we help one another. And that's what Paul is reminding these people to do, reminding us to do. And he's also giving us instructions on how to do it. So let's put the idea aside that the pastor is, is going to do everything. And I promise, I'm not saying that self-serving. Like, I need help. You guys are amazing. I don't feel overburdened. I don't feel overworked. But I do feel the burden of responsibility to teach you. This is for all of us. All of us are supposed to be relationally connected through our community groups, through our gatherings on Sunday, through the times that are even unplanned and spontaneous, where we are providing soul care for one another. That word is nutheteo. It actually means to counsel one another. We're supposed to all be, everyone in here is a counselor. If you're in a relationship with somebody, you're a counselor, either a poor one or a good one, right? But we're all counselors. And so Paul is wanting to help us. So we are all called to do this because we are the body of Christ. You're all spiritual EMTs. And I'll be real candid with you. You have access to people that your pastor will never have access to. You're going to overhear conversations that I'll never overhear. And not just because they're gossipy or slanderous. I'm just, I don't live with you. I don't have the same relationships you do. I don't go to every community group. I have my own community group that I'm a part of. So I have limited access. So you have access that I'll never have. And people's spiritual sanctification and, and some degrees is dependent on your, your love, unconditional love and your willingness to step into something messy and help somebody. You're not going to do it perfectly because you're a flawed human being, redeemed by Christ, but still battling indwelling sin. But God has called us all to be involved. Relationships are messy, but they're worth the mess, right? Now, here's another point I want to make. Some people like to label the people in this group, problem people. They're like, ah, there you go. There's the problem people, the people that are idle, the people that are always sick and tired, the people that are rebellious are problem people. Um, and listen, I understand where they're coming from, but we got to be really careful <clears throat> how we talk about brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. The church already has a slanderer. The church already has an accuser, Satan. They, they don't need our, he doesn't need our help. But so often he gets it, right? These are not problem people. Listen, if you have more than one person together, uh, you already have a problem, right? Because <laughs> we're all flawed. I'm not, I, and I promise I'm not saying that to be a comedian. It's true. How long are you in a relationship before conflict arises? And you're like, well, that's a problem person. No, that's a human being, man. And that happens. That's part of life. You can't escape it. Some people try to escape it, and then that creates problems on their own because the Bible says it's not good for men and women to be alone. We're no good on our own. We're better together, but it's messier together, and it's more complex, but it's worth it. The Bible says it's worth it because there's tremendous blessings and opportunities when we're together that don't exist when we're alone and isolated. So these are not problem people. Let me say it another way. Do you know anything about this church that Paul is writing to here, 1 Thessalonians? If, if the Thessalonian church was a watch, it would be a Rolex, this is an amazing church, and I know we have to be careful ranking churches, but Paul ranks this church. If you read all five chapters of this, he is praising this church over and over. They're an amazing church. If it was a watch, it'd be a Rolex. If it was a hotel, it would be a Ritz-Carlton. My wife had to correct me this morning. I said, this would be like a Hilton, right? She said, no, honey. She said, listen, there's Motel 6, then there's Hilton, then there's Ritz-Carlton. I'm like, well, I'm from Arkansas. Hilton is a Ritz-Carlton, you know? <laughs> Uh, and she said, no, it's just, just trust me, you're going to get laughed at. So this is the Ritz-Carlton of, of, of churches if it was a hotel. This is an amazing church. 
This is what Paul says when he's writing them. Their faith was growing abundantly. Every pastor's dream that his people, his flock is healthy. They're growing, right? Their love was increasing. At one point, he said, concerning love, I don't need to even say anything to you. What? How would you like to be a part of a church where the pastor got up and he said, today's sermon is on love, but you guys have already preached it. I don't need to say anything. Let's all go to Cracker Barrel. Wouldn't that be great? That's basically what Paul said. He said, I don't need to tell you anything about love. You are emulating the love of Jesus Christ. He says they received the word of God with joy, even in much affliction. So they were eager to hear teaching from the word of God. They dug into the scriptures. They loved God's word. That's a healthy church. They loved and followed their leaders, Silas and Paul and Timothy. Um, They suffered well through intense persecution. They anticipated the return of the Lord. They were evangelizing the city. Paul said, your faith is famous. Everybody in the Greco-Roman culture knows about your church and about the Christ who redeemed you. I mean, usually you have to, to get a church to evangelize in the city, it's You really have to do the carrot and the stick sometimes, right? Paul didn't have to do that. They were already doing it. They were evangelizing the city. They were repenting of their idols and turning to Jesus. They were financially generous. They tithed. They gave their gifts and their offerings. They supported the church and their leadership. That's why Paul at one point says this. He called them his crown of boasting at the Lord's return. It's pretty amazing. He said, when Jesus comes back, I'm going to point to the Thessalonian church and say, Lord, look what you did and thank you for using me humbly to to help plant a church like this. So don't think of these people as problem people. This is your normal, average, run-of-the-mill church. You're going to find people like this in every church. In fact, I will be honest with you. I have found myself in every category that Paul lists here. Rebellious, faint-hearted, sick, tired, and weak. I've, I've been all of those. Maybe you have been too. And Paul's going to give us some really serious help on how we are to handle that. But I, it's just a good reminder. We used to do an introduction here when we first started. We used to say uh, something like, welcome to the church. If you're, if you're sick, Jesus is the great physician. For those of you that, that are sad, uh, come and receive comfort. For those of you who are tired, come and receive rest. It was just a reminder that this church opens wide its doors. It's not a museum for eminent saints to put halos around their head and put them on a trophy shelf. This is a hospital for recovering sinners. This is what the, ho- the church is. Now, you don't want to stay in the hospital all the time. You want to get better and get out there and be salt and light. But the church should be viewed as uh, maybe an emergency room for people who are bleeding and they need immediate help. So this is a hospital for recovering sinners. It's not a museum for the eminent saints. In fact, Harry Ward Beecher said this, The church is not a gallery for the exhibition of eminent Christians but a school for the education of imperfect ones, a nursery for the care of weak ones, a hospital for the healing of those who need special care. So our goal is not to eliminate these people, (laughs) these groups of people that we see here. It's to help them. If you eliminate these groups of people, you don't have a church. (laughs) You don't. So the following are Paul's category of triage. Can I get it? Is the PowerPoint work? Yeah. For, for those of you who have heard that term, it, it actually uh, arose in, in a time of war for people that were wounded. It was a way for the first responding medics to get out there and try and assess, okay, this person's going to die no matter what we do. This person is going to live no matter what we do. This person here, it's really important how we treat him from here forth, from, from henceforth on. So triage was a medical term and it was a wartime term and Paul kind of uses that language. So here's what he said. Let me read the verse one more time to put it in your mind. He says, and we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, 
help the weak, and be patient with everyone. So first, let's look at the disorderly. That's going to be the first group. Can we, can we get that slide up? The disorderly. Now, this is actually a military term. That's why the military picture is up there. Who are these people? They are the unruly. They are disorderly. They are undisciplined. Now, I don't want you to be thinking of other people when I read this. I want you to think of yourself, okay? And ask God's spirit to help us and open our eyes. These are people, these are people who live their life independently of others. They're autonomous. They're self-sufficient. They're unreliable. Maybe they shirk their commitments if they make them at all and their promises. The word in Greek, it means out of step. It means there's a rank for, if anybody in here was a soldier, you know that there's a rank and file, right? And you're in line. And Paul's using a military term from the Greek world that means, here's a soldier that says, I like it over here better. And because of that, in a time of war, that's very dangerous. When you're a soldier, you're in a foxhole with other people. And your actions can put them in great danger. Cause them to die, cause them to get wounded, can cause you to lose the entire war. And so Paul is saying something very serious here. Uh, In an active sense... These people, the disorderly, they are rebellious and insubordinate. They're rule breakers. In a passive sense, maybe they're lazy, they're apathetic, they're indifferent to the ministry going on, to what God has called them to do, to the needs of others in the church. But the word unruly is a, uh, it's a military term. It means maybe they're, they're too far forward or they're too far back. And Paul is giving a warning here. When the line is broken, you give great advantage to the enemy. Or maybe this person is just AWOL. And they, like, have left the battle altogether. They, want to, they don't want to fight. It's too hard. It's too hard. I didn't know it would be this hard. I'm out. In Florida, when hurricanes come, <clears throat> sometimes there's a mandatory evacuation. And we don't like that word, do we? Mandatory. Somebody's telling us what to do. But they're saying, hey, look, I'm just warning you. You better leave. It's a Category 5, 185-mile-an-hour winds, and there's a crosshair on your city. So we're warning you now, get out while you can. You've got five days. And if you don't, your life is in your own hands. So I've been a part of that mandatory evacuation, right? And I have been leaving, like many of you, on I-95 with a quarter of a tank of gas. (laughs) And all the gas stations have that yellow tape wrapped around them. And it's bumper-to-bumper traffic. And you have, you know, six kids and maybe three cats and two dogs. And you're thinking, why did I do this? Oh, I know why, because I'm obeying the rules, I'm respecting the authorities that are trained and they're professionals. And they've told me to do something that's hard, but that is also what's best for me and for the first responders who need me out of the way. And have you been like me when you're headed out of town in bumper-to-bumper traffic? You notice in the other lanes, there's SUVs coming with surfboards on them. (laughs) And guys playing loud music. And I I have a friend, you may know him, Jeff Eckert. Anybody in here know who that is? He was my co-pastor that we planted this church together, and we sent him and five families to the beach to plant a church, and it's thriving, it's doing great. But Jeff was one of those people, adrenaline junkies, attracted to danger. And, you know, maybe that's a silly illustration, but for unruly people, you know what happens? The surfers come, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not a surfer. I wish I could. I wish I was, you know made out of rubber and can, <laughs> was 20 years old again, but, I, but I'm not. I can't do it. But, but they're the ones that go out there and they put their lives at risk and then they get caught up in a wave and 
The first responders that need to be helping elderly people that couldn't make it out of town, they're stuck rescuing swimmers and surfers and adrenaline junkies, right? That's kind of the idea here. So what do we do? How do we help these people? Do we write them off? That's not what Paul says. Do we send them away? No, we, we admonish them. This means a warning. You can see it up here. It's a loving correction, and it's aimed, it's aimed at bringing a person to confess their sin, to recognize the danger they put themselves and others in, and to turn, to repent. It literally means to put sense into somebody. Somebody's out of step, they're out of line, they're insubordinate, they're unruly, they're disorderly, and what do they need from you? They need you to lovingly, patiently come alongside of them and say, bro, this is stupid what you're doing, man. And you're going to end up getting hurt, and you're going to end up hurting somebody else, and I love you too much to ignore this. This is awkward, you've made it awkward, but I'm your friend, bro. Who else is going to tell you if I don't tell you? Let's get back in line. Here, I'll show you how. I'll help you. Let's do it together. That's what Paul's after here. And look, that's hard. That's awkward. Isn't it? That's a hard conversation to have with people. But if you don't have it and you're their closest friend, who else will? I remember hearing Martin Luther King uh, during the civil, you know, liberties fights that was going on. He said something in one of his speeches. He, he quoted from the Good Samaritan parable. You know, the, uh, the person that was on their way to Jericho and they fell among thieves. And Jesus is telling this, this parable because the Pharisees wouldn't lift a finger to help anybody. And there's the, the, a Levite and a priest that goes by and they look at this man and they think to themselves, if I stop to help him, what might happen to me? It's going to inconvenience me. It's going to be hard. I may get, maybe he's tricking me. Maybe he's going to rob me. And then the Samaritan comes by. And of course, he risks his own life. He pays out of pocket for the man's needs and accommodates him in a local shelter. And uh, Martin Luther King said, the Levite and the priest walked by and they thought, if I stop to help this man, what might happen to me? And he said, but the good Samaritan said, if I don't stop to help this person, what might happen to him? That's what Paul's after here. There's a responsibility. There's even an obligation to help people who are unruly. We don't write them off, but we call it what it is. It's sin. It's rebellion. It's insubordination. And they need us. They need you. You are your brother's keeper and your sister's keeper. And we're to step in and bring loving, gentle, patient correction and call them to repentance and help them to do it. So uh, second group, the discouraged. Can we get that slide up? The discouraged. This person has been called by, by one scholar the quitters. This is the person that the glass is always what? Half empty. You know anybody like that? Told you to not think of other people. Think think yourself. Have you been like that? Pessimistic. Nothing is what it should be. Nothing is what it could be. Everything's wrong and I can't be a part of it. I'm so discouraged. I can't. I can't even. It's, It's that kind of idea. Oh, I just can't. I can't do it again. Not again. It's that kind of person. Literally in Greek, there's a there's a compound word here, and it means little sold. Little sold. It sounds like an Indian name, doesn't it? Native American name, little soul. This is a person whose soul is just shrunken, it's shriveled, and they need help. One man said it like this, the faint-hearted lack the boldness to accept the new challenge. They fear change. They fear the unknown. They want a risk-free life that is traditional, safe, and secure. They're anxious, maybe. They're always apprehensive. They're always in danger of giving up. They're worried. They lack courage. They lack confidence. They're broken, they're afraid, they're racked with doubt, and they're racked with guilt all the time. They're little-souled. They're discouraged. 
You know what the Bible says to do? It's a beautiful word here that's made up of two words. It means to be near and to speak. Encourage them is what the English translation is. Get near them and speak to them. This is like putting your arm around somebody who's just slumped and saying, bro or sis, it's going to be okay. God's going to help you with this. I want, to be, I want to be an agent of change. I want to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands, and I want to come alongside you and help you. They need to be built up with truth. They need their soul to be enlarged. They don't need to be scolded from a distance. Have you ever been scolded from a distance by somebody that didn't really understand, they didn't know you, and they just wanted to criticize and, and wag their finger in your face? I've got a three-year-old toddler named Tyler, and I don't know where he picked up the habit, but this sucker, man, he walks around the house all the time going... I'm like, Tyler, put your big boy underwear on. You ever been scolded like that from afar by a toddler? <laughs> I have, and I've done it a few times myself. Maybe this person has faced a recent tragedy. Maybe the death of a loved one. Maybe they've been persecuted for their faith. Maybe they've been through trials and temptations. They're failing to live according to God's word. Maybe they're staggering under the, the call to follow Jesus. And they need your help. They need your patient, loving, tender, kind, close, speak truth into them, build them up. That's what they need. Now, are you already seeing a pattern here? These people aren't unruly. They don't need to be called to repentance because they're not sinning. They need a different kind of help. So don't misdiagnose. Have you ever done that? I've done that. I've done that. It's been said before that when your favorite tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. That, that was me the first 10 years of my ministry. I am ashamed. I have to stand up here and confess that to you. I had a theological hammer, and every problem I saw in the church was a nail. It's like, they're rebellious. They're insubordinate. They're off. And I missed incredible opportunities to step into a person's life and show them the kindness and to demonstrate the patience of Jesus Christ. You know what's said of Jesus? A bruised reed he will not break in a smoldering wick, he will not extinguish. That's one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus in Matthew. And it means this. Have you ever seen one of those reeds that grows in a marsh in Florida and it's bent over? And if the slight little wind, 10 degree, 10 mile an hour wind comes, it'll break, break and fall off. It says Jesus won't break a bruised reed. Have you ever seen a, a candle? Maybe when a hurricane does come and knocks the power out and you've got 10 of them in your house. And they're just barely, that, 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 that wick is just flickering. Maybe the wax is built up and melted and it's about to go out and you're tempted to just blow it out or extinguish it. And the Bible says Jesus doesn't extinguish the smoldering flick, uh, wick. He comes alongside and he provides the help, the love, the patience, and the understanding we need. So don't, don't mix up these categories. The unruly person or the uh, disorderly person is not the discouraged person and they need different treatment. They need different forms of help. And God has called us to be discerning and to recognize that. They need to be encouraged. So here's the last group. The last group is the delicate, okay? So we've got the disorderly, we've got the discouraged, and now we've got the delicate. And this is, this is a term that really means feeble, those that lack strength, whether it's physical strength, they have a chronic illness, or whether it's moral strength. This is the person that finds themselves being tempted by the same sin over and over and falls victim to it so often. And there's a, there, there's a time and a place to call them to repentance, and there's a time and a place to really 
help them and say, brother, I'm here with you. I want to help you. I want to hold you accountable. I want to pray with you. They're feeble. They don't have the strength. They don't have the fortitude. They're tired. They're sick. They're more susceptible to error and to temptation. They're always grasping at the latest new thing that's coming out that's going to be the answer. The latest self-help book that's been billed as a Christian book, these people are going to rush to the Christian bookstore and they're going to read it and it's going to leave them just as disillusioned and disappointed and confused as the last one did. And they're going to need your help to sort it all out. Have you ever been that person? Have you ever known that person? They're feeble, they're weak, they're delicate. And you know what the Bible says to do to them? It says to literally hold on to them. Now we're getting into the more needy form of people, right? The first one was you can kind of point your finger, I guess, in a, in a, in a, in a Christ-like sense and say, I'm warning you, man, this is dangerous. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt people. The next one, you, you step next to them and maybe you touch their shoulder and you speak truth into them. This one, oh, man, you're all in. This is like you've heard the joke about the, uh, the breakfast menu and the, and the picking the, the the pickin and the chig. That's one of those mornings. The pig and the chicken and the breakfast meal, Right? It was eggs and sausage, and the, uh, the pig looked at the chicken, and he said, hey, man, how willing are you, uh, how, how far are we willing to go to provide this breakfast? Uh, and, and the chicken said, well, I'm committed. Uh, no, excuse me. The chicken said, I'm involved. There's eggs. And the pig said, the pig said I'm committed because there's sausage. I think I totally butchered that joke, guys. You get it? Are, are you involved or are you committed, right? <laughs> You got to be committed to come alongside and lovingly help this kind of person because they're, they're very needy. They're very needy. And, and the slightest raise of volume in your voice can send them over the edge. They need real tenderness. And man, I love watching Jesus in his ministry, the way he approached people who were right here. I mean, I don't need to tell you all the, the variety of people that he was just so tender with them, so gentle with them, not harsh. He wasn't a distant critic. He came there to rescue them and to help them and to heal them and to teach them. He saw the multitude scattered on the, the hillside, and it says he was moved with compassion because he knew that they were sheep without a shepherd, and they were scattered, and the word there is harassed. They had been harassed by false teaching and legalism and tradition. They didn't understand the gospel. The penny hadn't dropped about they're free now. The finished work of Jesus has set them free, and maybe... There's some people in here and, and you're in that delicate, feeble, weak state. You're just very loosely clinging to Jesus. You really haven't fully figured out yet. The Spirit hasn't totally opened your eyes to what Jesus did for you. We grab them and we literally hold on to them. You know the song, Lean on Me. That would be appropriate here. It's what Paul said to the Romans. He said, receive the weak. Don't reject them. Receive them. Unconditionally receive them. These are people that if you don't grab hold of them, they're going to fall by the wayside. They need intervention. They need loving, patient help. And you say, that sounds hard, and that sounds like a job for a pastor. You have access to these people that I'll never have. You'll overhear conversations I'll never overhear. You'll be in a group with them, or you'll be at breakfast. I won't be there. None of our other elders will be there. You will be, and they need you. John Piper had a beautiful analogy that fits well here. He said, picture your arm pointing to the unruly and saying no more. Picture your arm touching the shoulder of the faint-hearted and letting them know that you care and are beside them for encouragement. And then picture your arm actually holding and lifting up the weak since they need extraordinary help. 
See, there's these different categories of people. Sins need to be repented of. Wounds need to be healed. And weaknesses need understanding. You see the difference there? Those are things that we have to use in counseling too. You have to listen really carefully to people. And then look at the last part of this. You say, how do you do that? Well, here's the key, okay? How do you walk with others in wisdom and love? Look at what Paul says next. Verse 14, 14, the last part. Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Do you know what this word patient literally means here? It means be long-fused, delayed judgment. Have you ever watched those cartoons of Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner? And you really wanted the Roadrunner to eventually get caught by... No, that's another sermon. I always have. He never catches them. But there's always a stick of dynamite, and he's laying a trap with an Acme dynamite case, right? And he has this long fuse that he lights. But it's actually not as long as he thinks it is, and it, all, it always ends up going, and blowing up Wally Coyote, and he's holding the sign, you know, waving the white flag. This literally, can I get the, the slide up? This means being a long-fused person. Yeah, that's, that's what you're supposed to do with the uh, people that are feeble. You're supposed to strengthen them. Uh, next, next slide. Be long-fused. Delayed judgment. Are you the kind of person that walks around and uh, you're a walking stick of dynamite with a short fuse? I've been there before. God's working on me. You know, these, these groups of people, that's not going to work with them. That's not going to work with them. You know, Proverbs says, the mouth of the righteous studies well how to answer. It says this, whoever answers a matter before he hears it, to him it's a shame and a reproach. How are you patient with people? You gotta listen to people. You gotta really hear them. Because it's so tempting for me to talk at people, to to seek to be understood rather than to seek to understand. Because if you'll sit down with people and you'll listen with them, you're gonna hear a story that's gonna help you, it's gonna inform you like, wow, I had no idea. This person looked... This person looked disorderly to me. It sounded like and looked like they needed to repent, but you know what? They've got deep wounds here, and they're sick. I didn't know they had chronic fatigue syndrome. I didn't know they had Lyme's disease. I didn't know that they've missed three months of work and that they can't make their car payment and that they're going to get evicted. I didn't know all those things. That's right, because you never ask. That's what patience is. It's hard. This is tough. There was a doctor in California that Sarah and I saw. He was Sarah's OBGYN, and I think our second pregnancy, the first pregnancy uh, we had here, we had Kirsten here in in Florida before we moved to California to go to the seminary, and we had Callie there. So Sarah, our first baby was a C-section, and that's a long story. We wished it wouldn't have been that way. That's the way it happened. So we moved to California. We found an amazing Christian doctor who was in his 70s, and he was about to retire, and he had delivered thousands. I know you hear that. He's delivered thousands. Half the town of Los Angeles, this guy delivered them. But no, he was really one of those doctors. He was, the whole hospital loved this guy. He was so tender. He was so patient. And to, to get in to see him, you would, you would arrive at a waiting room, and there'd be 50 people there all waiting to see him. And you would think, man, I should have brought my Hebrew vocabulary cards or something. I don't know. It was going to be a long time because he took so much time with his patients. He wanted to know, like, how are you doing? Where are you at? How are you feeling about that? I love that doctor. But anyway, uh, to make a long story short, Sarah did not want to have a C-section for Callie, our second baby, sitting back there. Hey, Callie. She didn't want to have, she wanted to have a natural birth. And this doctor, 
uh, who'd been at that hospital for a very long time, and it was in L.A., he said, I'm so sorry, but by law, this hospital is not allowed to let uh, a woman in your condition who's pregnant, who's had a previous C-section, and now you want to have a natural birth, I can't do it because of litigation, because of previous, I, I can't do it. And Sarah, like, really, you know my wife, she pressed. She's like, no, but I, we really prayed about this, and I, I just feel like it's dangerous. And, and this doctor started crying with my wife. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, is that the kind of doctor that you want? 70-year-old Christian doctor who's listening to a woman pour her heart out. He went in another room. It took him 15 minutes. He came back with a book this thick, hospital policy. He opened it up in tears and pointed out the paragraph to prove to my wife that his hands were literally tied. He wished he could help her, and he totally understood if she had to go get another OBGYN and go to another hospital. Man, I love that doctor, and I missed him. When we moved back here, we had the rest of our kids, and man, we, we had some good uh, physicians and healthcare, but we'll never forget that doctor. And you know what? I want to be like that in ministry. I want to be the doctor that sits down and is empathetic and is patient and really understands what category are you are. I don't want to make the wrong triage. I don't want to take your kidney out if you just got food poisoning. I mean, those things can be tried. I remember when I was a kid, I got off the bus in elementary school. My mom was waiting to pick me up in the car because where we lived down a gravel road. And we would always pick up our, our neighbors, too, from the high school bus who were teenagers. One, one, uh, one day, I had a, one of those round butterscotches, the, the yellow butterscotch candies. Man, I used to love those things. I can't even look at them now. I had PTSD. I got one of those things hung in my throat. That's the perfect choking. That's from Satan, I think. That's a satanic piece of hard candy. It got stuck in my throat. I couldn't talk. I couldn't breathe. I was turning different colors, and I'm a pretty talkative kid. So I got off the bus and stepped down, and boom, it went in my throat, stuck in my gullet. And I'm grabbing my mom and saying, boom, boom. And she's like, will you stop? You know, my mom's a lot, she'll hear this, and you remember mom, sorry, but, you know, <laughs> you didn't know. She was saying, son, quit being silly, and, and I couldn't, I'm like, my kidney. I was trying to say my kidney. She said, your kidney? Will you stop that? What do you mean your kidney? And, and our neighbor, the teenager, said, no, he's saying candy, and they put two and two together. I mean, I was, I was about to expire. I was getting near the end, and this teenager grabbed me by my feet and shook me upside down and was hitting my back, and bloop. This big blob of yellow candy came up. He saved my life. See, somebody else misdiagnosed me. They thought I was being silly and insubordinate and unruly and I needed to be scolded. That's not what I needed. I didn't need a distant critic wagging their finger in my face. I actually needed my life to be saved. I couldn't breathe. No oxygen. And thankfully, God put that teenager there to say, no, he's choking on his candy. It ain't his kidney. It's his candy. Amen. <laughs> I know it's silly and you laugh, but man, things happen like that in ministry all the time. Pastors are guilty. People are guilty. We need, if you have not taken the time to prayerfully sit down with a person who's troubled and listen to them, you're probably the wrong person to try and diagnose them and to offer help. You really are. It needs to be somebody that's being loving and kind and gentle and patient. One of my heroes is Charles Simeon. How many people have heard the name Charles Simeon? You probably have never heard him uh, because he wasn't a celebrity pastor, but he was a pastor, and he served a congregation in Cambridge for 54 years, 54 years. Now, check this out. I don't, I don't fully understand all the dynamics of this, but I've read the biography, and for the first 12 years of his service in that church, the congregation hated his guts. 
Now, guys, wrap your mind around that. I've been here, come January, five years. Imagine, I don't understand the dynamics in England during that time in the 1800s, but can you imagine coming to church and hating my guts and crossing your arms and the congregation, for whatever reason, had some measure of control and authority. They would lock the outside gates of the pews so that guests couldn't come. They harassed this guy. They plagued this guy. They couldn't stand their pastor. And for 12 years, 12 years, he endured their hatred and their animosity, and he faithfully preached the gospel to them, preached the gospel to them, preached the gospel to them. And it turns out, turning into a wonderful, beautiful relationship between people and pastor. I don't have time to read you all the things they did. They gossiped about him. They would invite another pastor to come on Sunday night to preach and like kick him out of the pulpit because they got to choose the Sunday night pastor. It's just really strange. But near the end of his life, one of his friends wrote him a letter and asked him, how did he persevere for so long under such adverse conditions. Now, I want to hear the answer to that. You, how do you live for 12 years pastoring people that hate your guts? How do you do that? What's the secret, bro? I want to know. I mean, you don't hate my guts, but I still want to know in case you do hate my guts, I guess. I, I don't know. But here's, here's what he said. Here's his letter he wrote. My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, and by that he means a, a bush with long thorns, okay? When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the, in the remembrance that our holy head, Jesus, has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his glory. Man, don't you love that? Just a little suffering. That's what Charles Simeon called 12 years of having your guts hated. <laughs> That's just an Arkansan term. Somebody hating your guts, that means severe hatred. He called that just a little suffering, just a light momentary affliction. How can you view suffering to that intensity and that degree as a little suffering? Because he, he, he studied his suffering under the cross. He said, this is nothing. I could endure 54 years of this if this is what Jesus has called me to because, he's, because of what he's done on my behalf. And I think, church, I want to end with this, and then we're going to introduce, I'm going to let Steve come up and introduce our community group leaders. If you're going to actually do what this passage is calling you to do, you had better be secure in the gospel. You had better be secure in your relationship to Jesus because you'll be slighted, you'll be taken advantage of, you'll get hurt, you'll feel angry, yeah, relationships are messy. They're hard, but they're worth it. They're worth it. And so what does the gospel say to us? You can tether yourself to the finished work of Jesus, and you can know this. You don't have anything to fear because you're loved by Christ. Man, isn't it a good feeling to know I'm safe and I'm secure? I'm not afraid of anything. I love people like that, in ministry especially. I'm not afraid. Jesus loves me. I don't have anything to fear. I don't have anything to lose. Because I belong to God. And there's nothing that can ever take that away. I can lose my life. I can lose my limbs. But I can't lose my soul because Jesus already purchased that for me. I belong to him. I'm his child. I'm adopted in his family. I'm blameless. I'm clean. I belong. You know, when you're adopted, I've read uh, in Rome, when you were adopted, you had more security and safety than if you would have been born naturally into that family. And the Bible strategically uses that word adoption for us to remind us how secure and loved we really are. 
Nobody can ever take you or rip you out of the, the arms of Christ. Somebody said to Spurgeon once, a lady who was doubting and weak and feeble, and she said, I just feel like I've lost my salvation. And he said, Madam, the Bible says that nobody can snatch you out of the hands of Jesus. He is greater than all. She said, but what if I slip through his fingers? And he said, you are his fingers. That's, that's security right there, right? You're the body of Christ. You think he's going to allow you to get amputated? No. You don't have anything to fear. You don't have anything to lose. You don't have anything to prove. You've already been declared blameless. God accepts you because of Jesus. No matter what happens, you're not going to lose. And lastly, you don't have anything to hide. You say, well, I'm a flawed person and relationships are going to expose. Somebody said walking into a group, like a community group to them, it's like somebody took a big bucket of bright neon paint and threw it on an invisible man who's now visible. It's like, maybe so, but listen, you don't have anything to hide. We all have flaws. We all have skeletons in our closet, but Jesus has covered our shame, right? That's a good thing. So secure yourself in the gospel. Remember what Jesus did for us and to us and know that relationships are worth the mess. God is with you. And I want to close in prayer and then I'm going to ask Maddie to come. We always have a, a time of reflection where a song is sang and we just think about what we heard and we pray and we have a prayer team at the back uh, that's if you need to be prayed for, if you have a sin that, that you want to confess, if you need to set up some counseling, if you have a question, we have a prayer team back there that's, that's eager to pray with you. And then I'm going to let Steve uh, come up here and talk about community groups for just a couple minutes with you. And I know community groups, that's really intimidating. And we have some clipboards in the lobby. And I want you to all pray and consider we have four community groups that this kind of thing needs to take place in. And those community groups are for multiple purposes. They're for outreach. They're for fellowship. Um, they're for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And some people think of community groups like the Green Eggs and Handbook. You remember that, Dr. Seuss? I'm not going to a community group, not with a fox, not in a box, not in the rain, not on a train. I do not like community groups. And then they finally go to one. And they feel the belonging. They feel uh, the gospel getting massaged into their heart. And what do they say? Hey, I like green eggs and hey, I like this community group. I've been missing out all this time. So I pray that that's what happens to you if you have been refusing to even entertain the idea of going to a group and that God would bring you to a place where you can sign up on that clipboard you can listen to Steve in a minute and see the groups being introduced. But for now, Maddie's going to sing. Let's pray, and uh, we'll take some time to reflect on this passage. Lord, thank you so much for the truths that we've considered today. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to find ourselves in that group and, and maybe repent of ways we have misdiagnosed. We have maybe been the hammer that saw every problem as a nail. Or maybe on the other side of that, we've coddled people that have been rebellious and insubordinate and needed to be warned because we were afraid, we were intimidated. Um, Lord, help us to, to know that there are people who are weak and they need understanding. There's people who have wounds and they need to be healed. And there's people who struggle with sin and they need to be called to repentance. Help us to consider these things now, both in our own hearts and the hearts of those close to us as we hear this song. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.